Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. It's great to see everyone this morning. Ryan Howard and I have a friend, a mutual friend, who is a go-getter when it comes to the gospel. He is passionate about preaching the gospel who need to know the Lord. And um, he basically spends his life loving people in this community who he believes need the Lord. And if you're ever around him, uh, you will find him uh, what I would call uniquely magnetic. Um, he's got this passion about him that is just kind of has a, a, a magnetism. Um, but sadly, he lives his life and does his ministry outside the context of the local church. And when you ask him the question, why? He says, because in my experience, the church is too passive, too indifferent. It has an inertia about it that is inwardly focused and not outwardly loving. And so he just decides to do his ministry outside the church to try to lead people to Jesus. Now, I want you to know that I believe that my friend is making a grave mistake. But I also want you to know that I share his frustration. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is too much passivity. There is too much apathy, too much indifference, too much inertia. There isn't enough battling, there isn't enough contending, there isn't enough fighting. And sadly, when the church is willing to battle and willing to fight, we're willing to fight for the wrong reasons and for the wrong things and with the wrong motives. And so church, today I want to call you to be a fighter. I want every one of you to be a fighter. Like Leela Atchison, I want you to be a fighter. I want you to be a fighter, Miss Millie Baker. I want you to fight. I want us all to fight. If we are a hundred strong here this morning, I want us to have a hundred fighters in the room. And I want specifically for us this morning to fight for joy. I want us to fight for joy. That's what Paul is writing to the Philippians about. Paul is writing to the Philippians, this church in Philippi, and he is, he is desiring to provoke and to promote an increasing joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to call you to fight for today. Uh, a delight that is not based on circumstances, on favorable situations, but rather on knowing and loving the, the Savior who lived perfectly and died sacrificially and rose powerfully and ascended into heaven and is one day going to return as King of kings and Lord of lords, I want us to fight for joy in Him. There's the reality is that there are joy killers that can creep into our life, into our family, and into our church that will prevent us from rejoicing. They will prevent us from having joy. And it, if there's a hundred of us, joy killers can come in a hundred different forms. I mean, difficult life circumstances. 
Mark and Pam have been up in New York and Philadelphia with Mark's parents this week, and, 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 and his mom is going through a, a very difficult uh, physical trial. And whenever you go through physical trials, those things can come in and steal your joy in a heartbeat. Or parenting. You're struggling with one particular parenting issue and you're not sure what the answer is, but you don't like what the the circumstance is with your child and, and, and it's zapping you of your strength and it's zapping you of your happiness and if you're not careful, it will zap you of all your joy. Or a job situation. You've been transferred into this area of of service and now you have a new boss and this boss is ridiculously careless or oppressively hard and you're like, I liked what I I was doing beforehand and my boss beforehand, now I've got this oppressive boss and all of a sudden, day after day, you find a little bit of your joy decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And church, y'all know that I could just go example after example after example. There are joy killers that are awaiting us at every turn and around every corner. And if we allow them, they will steal our happiness in God and our joy in God. And so I want to call you today to fight for joy. Now, now last week, the message was stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. And then we gave three strategies. We said, follow those who love Christ, resist those who hate Christ, and anticipate eternity with Christ. And that was chapter 3, verse 17 through 4.1. Today, we want to take that idea of standing firm in the Lord, and now we want to say, now we want to say, fight for joy in the Lord. And so let's read verses 2 through 9, 2 through 9 this morning, and we're going to look at Marks of Christians who fight for joy. The Apostle Paul speaks to the church at Philippi. The Holy Spirit speaks to us here in Redeemer Church at Oxford. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so, Paul's writing to his favorite, most beloved church, and the theme of the entire letter is rejoice. 
Rejoice. And this is how you can rejoice, is to know your Savior better. And that's why he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He says, I I want more joy, and so I need to know my Savior better. I want you to have more joy, so I want you to know your Savior better. And so as he's concluding this letter to the people that he loves, he's basically now saying, you need to fight for joy. And there are situations and circumstances in the church at Philippi that I need to address. And so Paul takes dead aim right here, not with a rifle, but with a shotgun. I mean, he has, he has a lot of different things that are going on inside the church that he wants to address and just kind of addresses them one after the other after the other. All right, so what I want to do is I want to give you seven, seven marks of Christians who fight for joy because that's what he gives right here in these verses. And so the, the first mark of somebody who is fighting for joy, they're going to be known by reconciling. Reconciling. What what, what is reconciling? It is restoring fellowship. That's really what reconciling is. And he, he interestingly, he doesn't do this very often in his 13 letters, but look down at verse 2. He just goes ahead and calls these two sisters out by name. He says, I entreat... Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. Like, you remember, um, Epaphroditus was going to carry this letter, and he was going to come back and read it in front of the whole church. And don't you know that when he got to chapter 4, and he started reading, you, Epaphroditus is up here, from the beloved Paul, and he, he says, oh, and Paul says, I entreat Euodia. I entreat Syntyche. Yep, yep. Agree in the Lord. Could you imagine how uncomfortable that would be? How awkward that would be? But that's what he does. He calls them out by name. And what does he say? He says, agree in the Lord. That word agree means to have the same mind. Have the same mind. And he's, what he's saying to these sisters, he's saying, y'all have been purchased By the same Savior. You believe in the same gospel. You share the same inheritance. You have the same God. You're possessed by the same Spirit. Therefore, you should have the same mind. And no matter what your differences were, and no matter what the hostility is right now, You need to understand that your primary allegiance is the same allegiance. And you didn't need to let whatever it is that is bothering you or that has created a rub against you to understand that that is so not important when it comes to the big scheme of what God is doing to build His kingdom. And He said, I want you to have the same mind as one another. Now just in case they're unwilling to make reconciliation with one another, look at what He says. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Now, the true companion, we don't know who that is by name, but of course, that person would know who it is when he wrote, when Paul wrote to him. And he says, help these women. Literally, take hold of these women and close them in your hands. That's generally what that word help was used, literally. Seize this thing and clasp them in your hands. And so he's basically saying, take hold of them and aid them. Help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel. Listen, 
Their names are in the book of life, like your name is in the book of life, like my name is in the book of life. We're all on the same team, in the same family. We've got to help one another love each other, Paul is saying. Now, this word, uh, this word entreat, actually, why don't you just take, take a look at verses 2 and 3, because this is what I want you to take. Take note of the together language. He repeats the word entreat right here. It's the Greek parakaleo, to come alongside of and call. In other words, Paul is using this word, parakaleo, kaleo call. Para could come alongside of, and he's coming alongside his sisters, and he's saying, I'm right here with you on your team, and I want y'all to come together. Okay? Keep, keep an eye down on the text. Agree. In other words, bring together, have the same mind. And then he calls this this friend his true companion. That word companion, it means literally yoked together, like two oxen that are under the same yoke. Come together, be yoked together in the same work, true companion. And then he says, they labored side by side with me. They strove together with me as co-laborers. And then he essentially calls them fellow workers. I mean, there is, there's, there is togetherness language throughout these two verses, and Paul is just saying, we are together. Let's don't act as if we are apart. Let's don't let anything separate us and create divisions. And so it made me say this week as I was studying, it is both illogical and absurd to persist in relational conflict. It's illogical because it, it basically denies the nature of our relationship with one another. It's absurd because we have everything that we need to bring reconciliation. We have everything that we need to bring restoration. We have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We have the people of God to help us. We need to come together and love one another. And so, I'm a big believer in Ken Sandy's ministry called uh, uh, Peacemaking. And he's written a number of books, uh, The Peacemaker, Peacemaking for families, peacemaking for, for pastors. And so whenever I get the opportunity, I always want to reiterate both not only that ministry, but the four keys to peacemaking. It's number one, glorify God. If you're, if you're in a conflict with somebody, the first thing that you need to think is, I've got to glorify God in this conflict. I've got to glorify God in, the, in this broken relationship. Number two, you've got to say, I've got to get the log out of my own eye. Right now, I am inclined to throw stones at the other person. It's his fault. It's her fault. They said this. They did that. It's, it's their fault. No, what God would want you to do is to get the log out of your own personal life. That's exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Get the log out of your own eye. So glorify God. Get the log out of your own eye. And then Go and be reconciled to your brother or to your sister. Go. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't wait around for a good time. Don't wait around for a convenient time. Go and be reconciled. I think it's Matthew 5, 22 to 23. If you're there offering your gift at the altar and you realize that you have a brother or sister against you, leave the altar and go and be reconciled to them. All right, so go and be reconciled. And when you go, gently restore. Gently restore. Have a spirit of grace about you. Have a spirit of confession about you. Have a spirit of humility about you. Don't go and knock on the door and say, you wronged me, or you did this, or you did that. No, go and say, listen, I'm a broken person, and I have, 
I have bad thoughts. I have bad ideas. Sometimes I think I'm right and I'm actually wrong. I just know that we're apart right now and I want to come together. Would you be willing to sit down so that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ? Those are the four aspects of peacemaking that you need to apply if if you're going to be a reconciler. If you're going to fight for joy, because this is what I know. This is what I know. When you're in conflict with somebody, your joy is decreasing by the hour. You're saying, no, 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 I can still come. I can still come to worship on Sunday mornings and get my worship on and raise my hands and enjoy the Lord. And I can separate what I do on Sunday mornings and worshiping the Lord with the conflict that I have with my brother and sister. And I would say that if you're separating those two, all you're doing is training yourself to be a hypocrite. All you're doing is training yourself to be a self-righteous religious person rather than a true worshiper of God. And so what you need to do is you need to be a reconciler. You've got to fight for joy in order to be reconciled with as many people as it, is, as it depends on you. I think I need to put a little asterisk there and say some of us have tried to reconcile with people who are unwilling to reconcile with us. And when that's happened, you just pray for that person, you plead for them, and you ask for grace because you can't force someone to come into reconciliation with you. But I will say this, if that person is inside this church and they're unwilling to reconcile with you, then you need to come to the leaders of the church for mediation because that's exactly what Paul tells the true companion here. Help these women. Help them. So let your leaders help you bring reconciliation in a relationship. So stop disagreeing, stop the conflict, come together, be reconciled. That's how you fight for joy. All right, number two. Need to be known by rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Now, I think it was a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, I spent about 20 minutes talking about delighting in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. So if, uh, if you want to go back to that sermon and listen more about kind of the pitfalls to rejoicing than the pitfalls um, to, to, to struggling with that, I, I would refer you to it. But this idea of rejoicing is being glad in the Lord and expressing that gladness. Now that's critical, church. It's being glad in the Lord and expressing that gladness in the Lord. What Paul is saying, instead of arguing, spend your time rejoicing. Instead of complaining, spend your time delighting. Instead of stewing, spend your time praising. Now if you ask the question, why is it that Paul keeps coming back to this this idea of delighting. I mean, he's already said it 15 times. If you read the book of of, uh, Philippians, he says joy, rejoicing, delighting in 16 times in this four-chapter letter. And here in this verse, he says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. I mean, anybody ever heard the term redundant? I mean, it seems redundant. But the reason Paul constantly reminds the church to rejoice is because we're so inclined not to. We're inclined to complain, murmur, be dissatisfied. We're inclined to see our circumstances in the worst possible light. And the fact is, church, we get it honest. I mean, think about Adam our very first representative. 
when God comes to Adam in grace, after Adam has fallen into temptation and brought a curse on the world, Adam's first words are, it was the woman that you gave me. And then Moses. Moses, things aren't going well as he's trying to lead the people and all of this. And, and Moses says to the Lord, Lord, why have you sent me? You haven't delivered your people at all. And then the people of Israel, I mean, over and over again, they were like, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die? We loathe this stinking bread that you give us every day. Job, when he's going through his struggles, says, may the, may the day perish on which I was born. May that day be darkness. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. Like, that's really, I mean, that's far out. But listen, Jeremiah takes it a step further. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying a male child's been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without pity. Like you guys understand, Jeremiah is saying, that day that I was born, some man went and told my dad that I was born. And I want that man to be cursed like a bunch of cursed cities that God... I mean, that is significant complaining. I mean, that's taking it pretty far. Jonah, who goes and leads a revival of repentance in Nineveh, he, he basically says, I knew that would happen. And so he goes off by himself, and the Lord in His grace raises up, grows a tree over Jonah to bring shade. And then the Lord sovereignly and rightly causes the tree to die. And the Lord says, is it right for you to get angry about this tree that, that, that's died? And Jonah says, it is right. It is right for me to get angry, Lord. And then the disciples, if you can remember when the woman came in and took all of that expensive oil and washed Jesus, what did the disciples do? They complained and murmured that it could have been spent in a better way. Now church, I'm mounting this argument to say that you and I are not unlike our ancestors. We, we are inclined to murmur and complain at every turn. Ryan and, and Matt and I played golf yesterday, and little did we know when we got to the first green all of the holes had been aerated. They had been punched. They all had holes all in them so that when I, when I hit my first putt, it looked like it was going in the actual hole, but it hit one of the aerated holes and took a 90-degree turn left. True? All right. And so I really was not happy about that. And I realized that the next 17 holes were going to be like that. And, and I told Ryan, I went over and told Ryan, I said, Ryan, this will be the last time that I'm going to say anything, but I'm really disappointed that we're on aerated greens. And how many times, Ryan, over the next 17 holes did I look at you and want to complain? A few, a few. Okay, that's generous. That's generous. All right. But you know, this is the thing, church. If I would have been sober, about 
what I was doing and the nature of my life. And if I would have just asked the question relative to what? Like my life is difficult right now. Relative to what? Well, relative to the little guy over in Hobson City who doesn't know where he's going to have his meal tonight? Relative to the little children in Syria who don't have parents today? Relative to what? Relative to the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and is on his deathbed and is about to meet his maker and be judged forever? Relative to what? You see, I'm, I'm given to complain and murmur and not rejoice because I'm putting on aerated greens. That shows you the nature, the, the, the bent, broken nature of our disposition. And, and church, I just want to call you. I want to call you to think about who you are. Think about whose you are. Think, think about Jesus Christ giving His life for your life, paying the penalty for your sins, rising again so that you can have a resurrection life, going into eternity knowing that He's going to come back and call you to Himself to be like Him and to behold Him and to enjoy Him forever. Yeah. Think about that the next time you're complaining or next time you're tempted to, to murmur. Now I want you to go to Psalm 71. Psalm 71, because I want us to be encouraged and instructed not only to have a delight in our heart, but to express that delight. And right now, if you are given toward having a sense of satisfaction in God, but you don't really verbalize it, you don't really sing it, you don't really express it, you don't really um, tell others about it. Let's just maybe start with verse 14 here. The psalmist is, well, we'll start with 12. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Now, now church, what I'm saying to you is, is I believe that you should make that same testimony. My mouth will tell of the righteous acts of God. All right? Verse 16. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. I'm going to tell people about the righteousness of God because I delight in Him inwardly. Verse 17, Oh God, from my youth you've taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Look at that proclamation. I'm proclaiming the deeds of the Lord because I'm rejoicing in Him. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, don't forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you, you have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. 
You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips, my lips, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also which you have redeemed and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Now, now, now church, I wanted to use that psalm because he uses language like tongue, lips, shouting, singing. Anyone who truly delights in the goodness and the grace and the glory of God is going to express that delight. And people who hold that in and are unwilling or unable or whatever the case may be, don't shout the praises of God I would say at the very best, you're limiting your rejoicing. And maybe at the worst, you don't even know the Lord because you're either either unwilling or you're scared to profess with your mouth what you possess in your heart. Okay, so rejoice. Delight yourself in the Lord of your deliverance. Now, uh, Thursday morning, our dairy cow, Mabel, uh, decided it was time to give birth to her calf. And uh, Carson came running in the house and said, two hooves are out, two hooves are out. Or was it one hoof? I can't remember. Was it one? It was one hoof. And so everybody kind of changed clothes and ran down to the barn, and we watched for about 20 minutes. Jamie, would that be right? 20 minutes. 20 or 30 minutes, and another hoof came out, and one of the, the hoofs, the, the, the hoofs are supposed to come out kind of equal with one another, and then at some point, the nose of the calf is, is supposed to come out kind of like this. But for half an hour or so, the hooves were kind of cockeyed like this, and nothing was coming else out. And so um, finally, Jamie asked me if I could go and pull. And um, so, yeah, I said, yes, I will. I had already run to the storage building to get gloves. And so um, I went and I started pulling really hard. And I just kept pulling and kept pulling. And, and, and the, the cow was working and all of this. Well, um, finally, I, uh, I got the, the hooves kind of parallel with one another. And then the nose kind of stuck out and the tongue stuck out. And as I'm pulling really hard, church, um, the tongue was limp. It wasn't moving at all. And the nose had no air coming into it and no air coming out of it. And two years ago, I helped deliver a baby donkey. And we had to pull really hard for that one, and it was stillborn. And that was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And so as I'm pulling, I don't want to over-dramatize this, Jamie, 10 minutes, something like that. Um, I'm praying. And I literally am praying, God, this is going to be really sad if this calf 
is dead. But I want a purpose to rejoice in your faithfulness no matter what. And I want to be a leader to my wife and to my boys who have been longing for this for 10 months. And so would you help me to recount your goodness and your faithfulness no matter what is about to happen? But would you please make this calf alive? And so the cow worked and I pulled and the, the calf came out and started breathing and it was a beautiful thing and it was really, it was really glorious. Hallelujah. But this is the thing. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord, again I will say rejoice. He adds a word in there. What is that word that I just did not say? Always. No matter whether the calf is alive or whether the calf is dead, rejoice. No matter whether your circumstances are good, no matter whether your circumstances are bad, rejoice. No matter whether you're making a lot in commission on your job or you haven't got any commission in two months, rejoice. Because your God is the same yesterday, today, and always. He is on the throne. He loves you and He is doing what is absolutely best for you. Rejoice in Him. Know that. Rest in Him because He's good. So church, I call you to rejoice. Third, third, you should be known by reaching. Reaching. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, this word reasonableness, interesting, I'm sure that if you look at different versions, that you're probably going to have a different word in every version. The idea is gentleness, kindness, generosity, but the best way to think of it, listen to this, is big-heartedness. Big-heartedness. Let your big-heartedness be known to everyone. Be big-hearted and demonstrate that big-heartedness to everyone you know, Paul is saying. And he's talking to the people in Philippi, so he's saying, let everyone that you see and everyone that you meet in Philippi and in Macedonia and in the Roman Empire see and experience your big-hearted disposition. In church... Who is the most big-hearted person who ever lived? Christ. Christ. And I would love for us right now to recount together, what are some examples of Jesus' big-heartedness? Yeah, the woman at the well. So big of a heart, He doesn't condemn her, He loves her. He doesn't cast her away, He draws her to Himself and loves her and openly forgives her and saves her, and she kind of leads a revival among her people. Jesus was big-hearted toward this woman who had been struggling her whole life. Let's do at least five. Daniel. And loved him, that's right. Basically, the rich young ruler is like, I got this. And instead of Jesus saying, okay, you got this, then so be it. Jesus had compassion on this man who was even self-righteous. Matt. Lazarus. Oh, that's so, that's so good. And Lazarus' sisters, right? He's so big-hearted, he cares for their needs and their desires and their wants. Yes, sir? Paul, okay. Yeah, just saving Paul on the Damascus Road. Uh, absolutely. Abigail. 
Yeah, the woman caught in adultery. They're wanting to cast stones at her. Wait a minute. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. And he swoops her up and loves her and says, go and sin no more. He's big hearted. He's big hearted, Mike. That's right. Man, he just gave of himself. And here he is, fully human. He gets tired. He gets weary. And yet he continues to, to care for these people who are in physical need. Jesus is big hearted. Isaiah. Amen. He saw the needs of all of these thousands. And even though he was trying to get away from the crowds, his big-heartedness drew, them not, drew him not away from the crowd, but to them. Yeah, so good. Robbie. Oh, man. Today, today, thief, you will be with me in paradise. That's big-heartedness. Mark. Amen. Struggling woman, basically hopeless. Jesus is her last hope. And he says, man, just come to me. I'll take care of this. Praise God for the big heartedness of his son, Jesus. Now, what I want to say is that while some of us, not me, but some of us are maybe naturally reserved, quiet, possibly even shy, like you, exactly, Mark. We're, we're opposite. Okay, so what, what Paul is calling the church of Jesus Christ to do is to be big-hearted, like have a big-hearted disposition toward people and demonstrate that big-heartedness to everybody that you see. And it doesn't matter what your natural disposition is. It doesn't matter how you're bent. He's saying big-hearted, and I want you to think about something. So most of us go to the grocery store. You ever thought about the fact that when you get up to the counter and you put your things down and you look over at the checkout guy in front of you, do you realize that he's a real person? He has a real life with real needs and real burdens and real problems. And he's here working at this job in order to help with his needs and his burdens and his issues, and he probably has every bit as much of burdens and problems in his life that you have in your life. And what the Apostle Paul is calling the church of Jesus Christ to do is to be big-hearted toward him. It's to love him, to look at him in the eyes, to care for him, to learn his name, to ask about him. Like church, I... I, I'm, I'm sorry if I sound like the guy who wrote that book, um, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People, but I just want to tell you right now, when you get in the community, no matter whether you're knocking on doors or, or going across the street to your neighbor, I just want to tell you, you need to look people in the eyes. You need to smile at people. You need to ask them their name. You need to ask them about their life. You need to be ready to offer a word of encouragement and a word of blessing to those people, and you need to be ready to serve them if you can help meet their need. Like, that's just what you need to do if you want to be a big-hearted person. I would say that you are making a grand mistake and you are rejecting the revelation of God if you live in your own little bubble in this community and you don't see yourself as a person to demonstrate the big-heartedness of Jesus Christ to your community and to your region.
we've got to take on a new disposition. We've got to take on a new heart. We are missionaries, and we are called to be big-hearted to the people around us. He says, let your big-heartedness be known to everyone. I want to say one more thing under this. I do not want to address the ladies at Redeemer on this. I want to address the men. And we have some visitors in the, in the building today, and thank you so much for being here. But over the last six weeks, we have had probably three or four men visit the church and stay for our fellowship meal. And three of those four times, those three visiting men sat by themselves in the fellowship meal. Man, can I have your eyes, please? A sinful. It's self. It's wrong. And we should be ashamed. Jesus Christ came to us when we were a stranger, and He made us a part of His family. And we have strangers who come to us and we won't walk across the hall to sit down with them to love them in the name of Jesus. You need to feel rebuked right now. You need to be rebuked. You need to repent. And you need to be big hearted. You need to look beyond the confines of your own little self and your family and join other people inside the family of God. To think that we can expect the blessing of God on this church when men won't love other men, you're living in a dream world, a fantasy world. God will not bless it. Now I call you to take on the mind of Christ, to be big-hearted, to be loving, to be gracious, to walk across the room, and to care for people who come to us. I don't know how to transition from that. But I will tell you, I trust that the Holy Spirit, who is inside of each one of you, will grant you motivation from the Spirit of Christ, from the example of Christ, to live like Christ in very simple, practical ways. God help us if we don't obey Him. Okay, let's go to number four. Requesting. Requesting. He says, The Lord's at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, church, if you want to fight for joy, if you, if you want to be a joyful person, he's just saying you've got to bring all your requests to God. Instead of worrying, instead of having anxiety, instead of having this troubled spirit, then you need to go to the Lord and request of Him and say, Lord, I'm anxious about this situation. I have worry about this circumstance. My family is in trouble. My job is in trouble. I'm in trouble. Lord, I come to You and I ask You to take these burdens from me and be sovereign over this. That's exactly what he's, he's saying. He's saying, instead of worrying, pray. We worry about too much and we ask God for too little. And he's saying, go to the Lord. Now, I want you to take note 
on that kind of that third phrase, he says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with, with what church? Thanksgiving. I love the fact that Paul teaches us that even in our prayers of requesting, they should include thanksgiving. And I think that if we want to reverse that, the trajectory that Adam and Moses and Israel and Jeremiah and Jonah and the disciples have kind of set for us, if we want to reverse that trajectory, church, the idea is not to not share our, our difficult circumstances with God. The, 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 the deal is not, well, I'm just not going to talk to God because He's going to think I'm complaining or murmuring. No. No. We need to just let our, our cries and our concerns and our anxieties be known to God. And in the midst of it, we need to offer up gratitude to Him for His, great, for his faithfulness, for His goodness. Um, I was going to demonstrate it for you, but I don't think I will uh, right now. But the idea is this is that, God, um, I'm in need. But even in the midst of my need, I want to thank you for your faithfulness. Even in the midst of my concern for my family, I want to thank you for your goodness. And I know that you're always going to be faithful to me. And so as I express this need to you, Lord, I'm going to rest in your goodness. And so that's, that's the combination of what the prayer life should, should be like when he says, make it with thanksgiving. And so... We should be marked by requesting. We should be marked by requesting. All right, let's go to number five, resting. He says, because the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And if you request to God, if you cry out to God and let all of your requests be made known to Him, then you're going to walk a lot lighter during the day. Um... I can personally give testimony that when I carry my burdens and I carry my anxieties and I carry all of my tasks and responsibilities as a worshiper, husband, dad, worker, friend, evangelist, ambassador, when I carry all of those things that mount up during the week and I'm just running here and I'm running here and I'm doing this and I'm stopping for this and I'm going here... I will tell you, anxiety can just build up. It can just, just mount up on top of my shoulders when I lose my joy and I also lose effectiveness. But, but church, when I bow before God in the morning, and then when I stop during the day and I bow before God and I release those concerns and those tasks and those responsibilities to the Lord, and I say, Lord, be sovereign over all of these things, I begin to walk lighter, I begin to increase in my joy, and I have confidence that no matter whether I get all these tasks done or not, no matter whether I fulfill all of these responsibilities excellently, God's got this. He's got it. And so we want to we rest in Him. Some have called peace. If you're right, taking notes, it would be a good, maybe a good little thing for you to write down. Peace is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. The heart's calm after Calvary's storm. When you understand that God took care of sin at the cross, then you can have peace as you draw to Him. Okay, let's just look uh, briefly and finally at the last two. 
The sixth is ruminating. Yes, I'm addicted to alliteration, I confess. Um, So if you want to put meditating or thinking, that's cool too. Um, Ruminating is to think about seriously. If you look it up in the dictionary, that's what it means, and that's exactly what Paul is calling us to, to think about seriously. And so he says, think about these things that is put together with your mind. Count, calculate, reckon in your mind these things. Let's just take a quick um, kind of catalog of these things. He says, whatever's true. It means without hiddenness. Whatever is conformed to reality, think about truth. Whatever is honorable, that is what is dignified, awe-inspiring, majestic. What is just, that is what is righteous, what is right, pure. Anything that's free from defilement. Anything that's innocent, pure, lovely. That's whatever is acceptable and dearly loved and pleasing to God, commendable. Anything that's well spoken of, praiseworthy, of good report, excellent. Anything that's superior in character and in nature, worthy of praise, anything that deserves praise, think about these things. And so, church, I will say this. You are what you think about. And if you tell me the content of what you think about, I will tell you the quality of your life. And I can tell you this, um, the quality of my life has improved over the last 20 years. I can tell you that 20 years ago, this is bragging, but it's kind of a fleshly thing, and so I'm bragging only to make my point. I could have probably beaten any guy in the room in sports trivia 20 years ago. Like, it doesn't matter what sport it was. I mean, I knew it. I knew it. I... I watched all the sports. I watched sports reporters on Sunday mornings before I went to church. I caught two episodes of ESPN Sports Center uh, on those mornings. I mean, and, and, and Braves, Atlanta Braves trivia. I'm telling you, if you wanted to battle me between 1980 and 1990 on Atlanta Braves trivia, you'd be hard-pressed to get an answer um, before I got it. Okay. I want to tell you now, I think I can tell you one player that plays for the Atlanta Braves. And I couldn't, I couldn't hold my, my spot in any type of sports trivia now among other sports buffs because I don't really watch it. I don't watch SportsCenter. I don't see those things anymore because I have transferred what I think about and what I meditate on and what my mind is fixated on from things that really don't matter the things that really do matter. Yeah, that's right. And so I want to call you. I, I don't want to call you to stop watching sports. I don't want to call you to stop collecting cards. I don't want to call you to stop having hobbies or anything like that. Please don't hear me say that. But you are what you think about. You are what you meditate on. And so I want to call you to meditate on the things of Christ, the things of God, the beauty of God, the faithfulness of God. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. All right. Finally, replicating. Replicating. Which basically means to see something and uh, practice it or to do it, to copy it. Okay? So he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
The word practice means to perform repeatedly, to continually, habitually do something over and over and over again. And this is the third time that the Apostle Paul has said, follow my example, do what I do, listen to my message, heed that message, and preach that message. And so church, if you want to fight for joy, you need to replicate what the Apostle Paul is advocating here and fight for joy by practicing uh, the same acts and preaching the same message and following the same Christ that Paul himself did. Okay, so I want to ask you if you would, bow, bow your head. We're just going to have a time of meditation. We'll have a time of meditation on these seven. And I, I would invite you to, to maybe just bow your head. And before you think about your own life and your own fight for joy, I want to, I want to be very open to, um, to rebuke and um, maybe just a, a, a gentle correction. I, I got really loud uh, there when I was bringing rebuke to the men, and I just want to confess that. And um, I apologize. I think it, was, it came across too strong. So please, please forgive me for coming across too strong in that section. Um, I, I did mean to bring rebuke, but I didn't mean to be so forceful. So please forgive me for that. Um, and I now want to ask you, if you will, just meditate. I'm going to call out these seven marks of a person who fights for joy. And I'm going to let you just do business with the Lord if you've got any business to do with Him. Reconciling, rejoicing, reaching, requesting, resting, ruminating, replicating. If you're going to be a fighter, if you're going to be somebody who battles to have joy in the Lord, you need to be marked by these seven marks. Is there any area in your life in these seven that you really need to say, Lord, I'm not doing this. I'm not reconciling. I've got somebody that, that I'm just at odds with. This person hurt me, offended me, I'm bitter. I want you to know right now, today is the day for you to bring reconciliation to that relationship. What about prayerfulness? Do you find yourself bottling all your concerns and anxieties up, not requesting from the Lord His goodness and His grace? Well, just cry out to God now and say, God, I need help to pray. I need help to request You. How about thinking? What do you think about? What do you fix your mind on hour by hour, and day by day? Do you need to repent of triviality, of impure thinking? 
cry out to the God of grace today and trust Him to bring a revival of spirit and a revival of heart 